developers are cumin for our heritage buildings. This week, there's a couple heritage buildings that may have their heritage ending soon. Plus, we'll talk about art and whether art should be installed within electric scooter distance of main streets. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Matt. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 45. As you can hear in the opening, Mac is back this week. I guess I still have a job. Julie killed it. Yeah, well, I mean, we're we're in talks to replace you. It'll <laughs> can't disclose the contracts while they're in ongoing negotiations. FOIP 24, I think it is. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. before we get into the rapid fire, a quick note about our schedule, because you care, you subscribe to Speaking Municipally. Council's going on their summer recess from July 22nd to August 16th. We'll be probably joining you at July 26th to give you an ending recap, but we'll be taking a break of the first two weeks of August to live our lives. I don't know. City Council, it is as draining as it can possibly be. So we're going to take those two weeks off and we'll join you back on August 16th, which will be our one year anniversary to give you a recap of what happened over the summer. There's always something interesting over the summer that council has to deal with. So, yeah, we'll tell um, you all about it. And we'll see if it is better or worse than last year, because the the original OG listeners will remember that there was a lot that happened over last summer that council had to deal with. But first, we'll deal with the rapid fire. A $13,000 bill given to an Edmonton man from the Edmonton Fire Department has lit a fire under city council, causing inflamed tempers as they requested a policy review. Council wants to make sure that no one else gets burned with red-hot fees. Spruce Grove has hired former Edmonton City Manager Simon Farbrother as their new city manager. Farbrother was city manager of Edmonton from 2010 to 2015 before being unceremoniously fired in an 11-to-1 vote by city council. However, Farbrother defended himself, encouraging people to look at his record and resume before making judgments about his competency. In a statement that speaking municipally can officially translate as... You fired me half a decade ago, and the Metro line still isn't working. Neener, neener, sucks to be you, Edmonton. I'm going back to my fave suburb. Hashtag Grove Life. The Mutart Conservatory is closed for renovations until at least 2021, after over a thousand people showed up to its final day on Monday. The Mutart will be undergoing renovations primarily to upgrade the 30-year-old facility's mechanical and electrical systems. The last time the Mutart underwent renovations was in 2009, when 6.3 million of upgrades were completed. When the Mutart finally reopens again, it will be to the fresh new Mutart LRT station on the Valet Line. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, and we want to tell you about one of the affiliated podcasts, the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. And now you might have heard of this before, but Mac wrote new ad text this week. I so did. The latest episode of the Well Endowed Podcast is the second installment of a special series called It Takes a Community, in which Hunter Cardinal talks with prominent Edmontonians about their communities. And you might remember Hunter Cardinal from his play that premiered last year-ish. Early this year. Yeah, it was a little while ago, but uh, Lake of the Stranger was a very good play. Uh, I can't tell you to go see it because it's gone now. You missed the boat. But... You don't need to miss the boat on the Well Endowed podcast. The latest episode features artist and community builder Nasser Adem talking, quote, about the support they receive from their mom, finding community on Tumblr, Black Girl Magic, and the joy they find in bringing talented people together. As always, you can find more at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Okay, Mac. So we're back. Um, granted, when Julie was here last week, there was a couple items, and we'll get to them at the bottom of the episode. Yeah. Mac will have comments on these, but 
I got Julie in the studio. We're we're not going to waste her time. Take advantage of it. Yeah. But I think the best place to start is in your home turf downtown. In fact, on 104th Street, where the McKenzie Tower was a thing this week. Yeah, I wasn't paying that much attention to what happened in Edmonton because I was on vacation. Uh, But of course, it's hard to completely disconnect. And I did pay attention to a few things. And so uh, today also I I looked into this and the McKenzie Tower was up at public hearing. This is, of course, a 34 story mixed use tower. They're proposing to have a hotel and a condo as well as some retail because, you know, towers got to have retail downtown now. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that before on the show. Uh, And this will be on 104th Street where the Blue Plate Diner currently sits. Ripping pepperonis. So this was the first or the next step, I guess, in the whole process. And it passed nine to three with counselors McKean and Paquette opposed with reasons and Nickel voting no. Because Nickel. Because he's Nickel. And some of those reasons were Paquette was annoyed or concerned about the the potential lack of 100% fulfillment of the historic or heritage area requirements. Uh, The planner said it fulfills 85% of the criteria and everybody else said that's good enough. The most Edmonton thing you can do. Yeah, pretty much. And then McKean was a bit concerned about the location. And so I feel like this might be a little bit of a theme in this episode, but, you know, he basically said it's the right building. He likes the building, but it's in the wrong location. Did he elaborate on what the right location would be well my understanding from uh talking to john hall who's a longtime resident of 104th street he was at the public hearing spoke against the proposal although not super aggressively i take it but voiced his opposition uh part of it is that it's located on the east side of 104th street on that block Um, and if you look at the street all of the buildings on the east side are heritage buildings and all of the buildings on the right side are new buildings that mirror the look of the heritage side. So if you looked north on 104th Street from Jasper Avenue, both of them have those nice curved frontages. So the Burks building is the heritage one on the east side, and the Sobies, the former Sobies, has mirrored that on the left, on the west side. And the towers are kind of like that all the way down. All the podiums mirror the the old warehouses from the, from the east side. So that was one of the reasons that he thought perhaps it was in the wrong location. Maybe it should have been on the other side of the street. Uh, there are no towers adjacent to it on that side of the street. And the other thing that came up was a concern about reducing the property values of sites next to it um, because of the the lack of lot lines. And so, for example, Mike Kerwin, who owns the Great West Life Building adjacent to it, says that this will have essentially reduced the value of his property because he can't build a tower there now. So... Um... You're usually the more measured and reasoned person on this podcast. (laughs) Do you have any reason why I should care about either of those things? Because I'm not finding it within my heart to do so. Yeah, I feel like the heritage thing is is something to care about to some extent. I mean, well, but heritage is different from what John Hall was talking about with the mirroring. No, because that's that sort of sounds like some black magic-y urban planner hogwash voodoo to me. Well, I think his point, I have a couple of quotes from him from, from uh, I think this was from a Edmonton Journal article that he was quoted in. So he says, what's the point of doing long-term planning if we don't stick to Sure. Which I think is a fair criticism. We've yes. created this heritage area for a reason, and now we're allowing somebody to come in and not actually comply with all the requirements of the heritage area. So he says, I'm concerned about opening the window and letting all sorts of crap fly through in an homage to, to Mayor Mandel's infamous line about crap. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so do we actually codify in the rules about like this warehouse versus mirroring towers? Is that part of the heritage plan? For not, not that specifically, but okay. there's a couple of heritage areas in the city that do specify what it must look like. And so these are things like, you know, the podiums mirror or, or looking like the, the brick warehouses that used to be there being a certain height, those types of things. Did we get a specific breakdown of what the 15% non-compliance is, or is this just a planning number that we got? Not to my knowledge. I I take it that it's sort of a planning number that we got because Mm -hmm. I don't think they've fully detailed what it will look like to that level of specificity. Um, And the reason is actually the other thing that John Hall raised, which I do think is another reason you should care about this one, (laughs) which is that when you think about 104th Street, in particular, the block between Jasper Avenue and 102nd Avenue, what people think about is the market, the farmer's market, the other events that have happened there, the Alberta Culture Days events. We've done what the truck events there. So and all of those things require you to shut down the street. And if we're building a hotel there, which requires access for taxis and other things, that means they'll never let you close down that street again. So it's possible that they could design it so that all that stuff is in the back, but that seems unlikely. And that would be a big change for the character of the street. It would really change the reason that people love the street so much. Well, and I'm thinking back to a couple of years ago where the very legitimate discussion when we were doing a lot of especially that plaza in front of the new uh, Kelly Ramsey building. Yeah. We're talking about, well, why don't we just close down Rice Tower Way to vehicle traffic? And the answer is, well, there's this $50 million parkade there and we can't we can't buy that business, so we can't close the street. Well, again, we have a someone raising the very real potential of, well, we might want to close down 104th Street to traffic, maybe not permanently, maybe permanently, and we can't do that if we put a specific vehicle-based business right there. Right. Um, so I do care about that one. You're right. Uh, you, man- <laughs> you managed to get the Grinch to have his heart grow a couple sizes. So that is one reason that I think you might want to care about it. Mayor Iveson basically said the street is missing a hotel. I didn't listen. I don't know where that... That was just a quote from the article. I'm not really sure why he thinks it's missing a hotel. It doesn't have one? I guess, yeah. <laughs> That's the factual reason why. I mean, I I can see that just that 104 Street, I think it's fair to call it a tentpole street in our downtown. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you're visiting a city, you want to stay on the tentpole street. Like, right. I can empathize with the idea that we have to have a hotel there. Empathy does not equal agreement uh, because I don't agree. But, you know, uh, where he's coming from, that could be a boon to 104 Street. Right. Tourism-wise. So I live in the Century, which is almost directly across the street. So I'm on the new side, the west side. And uh, I guess for me, the concern is those hotel folks would be able to see in my windows way more easily, potentially. But other than that, I think overall, it'll be a positive thing for the street. I just hope they can sort out the access on the on the ground level so that we can kind of keep the character of 104th as close as possible. It's interesting how um, your comments about character are very different than perhaps John Hall and the heritage argument comments about character yeah you're far less concerned not unconcerned but far less concerned with preserving the heritage look and feel of the buildings versus the actual cultural feel of 104 street that is very like community-minded yeah urban space i did a ted inspired talk about this a few years ago actually and that like when you walk down 104 street the way that it feels is a is a is a outcome of the fact that we've designed these buildings to match the podium's to match the the warehouses that the lighting is for pedestrians not for cars that the sidewalks are really wide so yeah when i'm talking about character i'm talking about you know that experience that you have going down 104th street yes i care about the heritage aspect of it as well but not as much as 
how that street feels. You did sit on the Edmonton Heritage Council at a point, correct? I did. I just wrapped up my term on the Edmonton Heritage Council. But don't worry. I will talk about heritage in the next story. So before we move on, I just want to loop back to the comments about property values. Right. Um, because neither you nor I have had a lot of empathy for property speculators downtown. Right. The one caveat would be this This was a concern coming from an existing landowner who said, well, what if I want to build a tower? And now he can't. Was there more details on precisely why he can't do that? He talked about a couple of things. He said if we if we left the current zoning in place, we didn't allow a variance and the, the tower was six stories less than proposed, that it would allow neighboring buildings to develop. He kind of talked about these national standards about tower heights and appropriate separation and said if we followed those, the maximum height on this would be or width would be five meters wide at a maximum, which is not a very wide tower. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, essentially it's that uh, if, if you put this tower there at the height that it is, um, the zoning doesn't allow you to build another tower next to it because there's no space in between these buildings. That's kind of my understanding of the of the concern that he's raising. And so council essentially did a first come first serve here and said, well, this tower proposal came forward and we're going to approve it. So too bad for you who already owns the building. Yeah, as a thought experiment, had the owner of the Great West Life Building made a tower, wouldn't that make it impossible for the owner of the Blue Plate Diner Building to make a tower? That's the way I understand it. Yeah, Uh Kind of sounds like a snooze you lose policy. Decision. Yeah. And I don't, as you say, have any sympathy for speculation. I don't know if that's what uh, Mr. Kerman was doing here or not. Maybe he was completely caught off guard here, but that's kind of irrelevant. I suppose the one caveat to that and where we should probably show a bit of sympathy is this isn't being built entirely within the existing zoning. They're, right. they're upzoning this. So council is changing the rules slightly to allow this tower. And I can appreciate how changing the rules to allow someone to do something that then prohibits you from doing that thing in the future. That That's true. Could feel bad. Yeah, I think the some of the owners from the Phillips lofts also raised that concern. And that was one of the things that John Hall was talking about, right? This idea that we have a plan, people knew what the rules were, and now you've gone and changed the rules. Which is the modus operandi for downtown, unfortunately. Yeah, I think Don Iveson replied to that actually and said, welcome to City Hall. Cool. That's... <laughs> whew, good take, Iveson. Um, but let's move on to... Not very far, but still downtown and still buildings and the lost of the El Mirador. And I remember there were articles written about this a couple months ago, and it seems like there's forward movement on the file. Well, and a couple of years ago, this is a site that has been up for debate for quite a while now, proposed development a number of years ago that kind of went nowhere. And then this most recent effort, which now seems like it's actually going to go somewhere. So this is the site on 108th Street and Jasper Avenue. Um, the project that's been proposed is called Parkview, and it's big. It's a 40 and 47-story towers, two of them, connected by a 13-story podium, which is a pretty big podium. Yeah. I don't know how you describe that as a podium, but... That's that's a building. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it would have over a 1,000 suites, and if construction began in 2021, the first phase would be completed in 2025. So there's two really interesting things about this project. The first is that it's right adjacent to this new central warehouse park that we talked about on the show before. This is exactly the kind of thing you want to see around a central park like that. You build, you bring in some of this density. But the other thing is this historic building, which is called El Mirador. Which it's is, the one where if you're walking from Jasper Ave to Denny's, it's the like white, <laughs> yeah. sort of like roundish Spanish looking building. You know the one if you've walked that You'll right. know it when you see it. You're right. It's a historic Spanish style building from 1935. And so, like I said in the previous segment, it's kind of the right building in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Like I think everybody kind of agreed 
that nobody wants to lose this building. Councillor McKean said no one will be happy with the loss of El Mirador. Nobody's happy about that. But council unanimously voted to allow this project to go forward anyway. Had this building been somewhere else, maybe not adjacent to our $27 million Central Park, yeah, might have been more appetite to save it, perhaps? Seems like it's very much a needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few type situation. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, sometimes you have to bulldoze history to make progress. And the, the thing is, in Edmonton, people will, the heritage advocates will say, that's all we ever do mm-hmm. is bulldoze history, right? And if you can't stop it here, you can't stop it anywhere. And well, and I another don't, one down, right? Oftentimes, I, I can start to roll my eyes at some of the heritage advocates just because, especially with the Glenora one, it's like, we're losing one of our several houses that look exactly like this. I don't know that there's actually another building that looks like El Mirador in yeah, the city. Uh, not to my knowledge. I mean, I'm no expert on that, but mm-hmm. uh, not to my knowledge, no. And I haven't seen any mention of that in any of the discussion about, you know, how, how sad it is to lose this building. Where I was on vacation last week, I was in Toronto in a community called Liberty Village. It's this very dense neighborhood that has been built up over the last number of years. It's a former industrial area. uh, And it's amazing what can happen when you have so much density. So actually reading a bit about it, the Toronto urbanists don't like it for a lot of reasons. It's concrete and glass and there's not a lot of green space. There is quite a bit of parking. But there's also a ton of people and you get so many interesting amenities when you have that many people living in such a small area. They've got about 25,000, 30,000 people in this one community and they have a home hardware, for instance, uh-huh. which we lack downtown. And I was fascinated that they're building a pedestrian cycle bridge over the train tracks solely to make it quicker for pedestrians and cyclists to get to the other adjacent neighborhood. This sounds like heresy to me. I know, right? It was incredible. So... I, I came back and I read about this proposal for Parkview getting approved at council and I just made me think this is another step closer to that larger vision that we have for downtown, which is a dense, um, you know, highly populated residential neighborhood, which allows some of these amenities that we lack currently to successfully exist. So we had planned to put it at the end of the episode, but I think this is a good segue to some of the comments that Bob Summers made this week about our art policy. Sure. Um because like you said, you, when you have these dense areas, you get these like tent pole. These are the tourist districts. This is like when people think of the city, they think of these places. And those are linked to public art. Um, you think any big American city, there will be some massive sort of like ostentatious public art piece that everyone goes takes Instagram photos with. The Bean the in bean. Chicago. Yeah. What is it called? Cloudgate is the y- official name? It's something with clouds. Yeah. But yeah. You, you see yourself in the clouds with a right. giant bean, all sorts of public art projects like that. And in Edmonton, because of our public art policy, which we've discussed previously, where when you build a new infrastructure project, 1% of the budget goes to public art on the site. We've, we've been criticized uh, this week for having a bit of everywhereism. And this sort of goes to the point that you were making right here. What if we want to establish this big central park and we want to have these residential towers and we want to make this the great place? Do we need to invest more public art in these areas or does our public art everywhere still work out for us? Right. And the reason um, Bob tweeted this this week was about the um, Kathleen Andrews Transit Garage, which is over on Fort Road. And there's a new piece of art called 53 Degrees... 30 minutes north. Is that how you say that? I couldn't tell you. It's like, <laughs> it's coordinates looking stuff. Um, probably on a podcast, we should have looked up how to say this piece of art. It's something like that. Yeah. So this is a $142 million project. About a million bucks then was spent on this piece of art. 
Don Iveson said, I thought it was kind of neat. <laughs> Constituents have told Councillor Paquette it looks like a prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I got this discussion going about, well, this is kind of ugly, or why did we put it way over here? Why didn't we put it downtown or somewhere where somebody's more likely to stumble upon it playing Pokemon Go? I mean, that was kind of the discussion. We've talked about this previously, and I still, I still stand by my justification that while I don't necessarily appreciate the art being there, I do appreciate the point of the policy, which is the policy forces art to be everywhere. Like we, Summers was criticizing the everywhereism, and I think that's a design decision of the policy, right? Specifically because if we're saying, oh well, we want to get more art downtown, do you think that art's going on Boyle Street or in the quarters? No, it's going where the rich people live, which can, you know, continue to make the city for a specific subset of people and ostracize and sort of neglect another set of people. Having the art policy say it's tied to the project you're building avoids that problem. Does create the new problem of putting like the talus dome on the uh, white mud or this on top of a transit garage. Right. But I, I don't know. I think I think it might be worth it. I think it's kind of similar to our affordable housing policy where we now want to make sure that that's equal throughout the city in all these different neighborhoods like why should only one neighborhood either benefit from public art or or pay the price of having more affordable housing units or or whatever it is it's sort of the same idea that we want edmonton to be edmonton for everyone regardless of where you live and it can look great whether or not you're downtown or driving over the quinell bridge on the white mud and of course you had to mention the talus dome you can't talk about public art in edmonton without talking about the talus dome. i love the talus dome by the way i love it too we're big fans on this podcast and i've actually come around to the talus dome's location specifically because it's great for cyclists i mean you can cycle right up to the talus dome it's like right on a great bike route and i guess a lot of people see it when they're driving on the white mud sure it's very visible yeah. yeah sure i might appreciate it being like in churchill square so that you get the bean effect but it's not it's not bad where it is i will say on this new transit garage art i hate it <laughs> i like I, I don't like it even a little bit i think the art might be more interesting on a building that didn't look so much like a prison it's so utilitarian right? yeah it's yeah. and the fact that it cost as much as it cost um like that's that's two significant and a, two and a half talus domes uh, i would have preferred two and a half talus domes on top but Maybe that's not the point of ambitious public art and art in general. Um, well, it's succeeding in what good art should do, right? Which is, it is getting us to talk. talk about it. Yeah. We're going to jump back to the towers. And there's a report coming to Urban Planning Committee next September that you thought was really interesting on some of this tower discussion. Yeah, it's called Upzoning on the Future Growth and Development of Edmonton's Uptown and Downtown, which I feel like is also is, is, is both a nod to the future and a nod to the past because... And a nod to the corporate bullshit generator. Yeah, that too. I mean, who says uptown anymore? Anyway, it's due to Urban Planning Committee in early September, and it's expected to cover some of the effects of upzoning of towers on property values, on planning of parks, on housing diversity. Um, it's been delayed a couple of times. I can only guess why that might be, um, but I think it'll have a, a wealth of information for us to dig into. Okay, and we'll look for that in early September. I want to move on to, oh, oh boy, I'm excited to see this topic. Bird rental e-scooters are launching across Canada. Um, not in Edmonton, though. Well, maybe. This is one of these e-scooter companies that offers rentals. Um, they said they're going to launch in Alberta first. They plan to expand to the rest of Canada as soon as they can. And they're currently waiting for exceptions to be granted in both Calgary and Edmonton concerning provincial regulation that would let them operate these on public roads. Uh 
bird scooters are dockless, which means you can just leave them anywhere. And at the same time as we are looking at maybe approving them or passing some regulations to allow them, other cities like Nashville are banning them because they see them as a burden on public infrastructure without the company having to pay their fair share versus the dock, the dock kind where you Somebody has to pay to maintain that infrastructure. Uh, Bird says that they would have somewhere between 500 and 1,000 scooters in both Edmonton and Calgary each. If you want to talk about mode sharing and bike sharing and that whole conversation, you can't get around the e-scooter discussion. And there are lines drawn that are fundamental warring lines. People hate them or people love them. And very few people fall in between. I'm personally on the love camp. Okay. Um, so I was in Seattle last December and they have about four different bike share companies that are all dockless. And I thought the bikes were an absolute nuisance. You, They were falling over. over. They the were place. all over sidewalks. They were everywhere. But you know where they weren't? In parking stalls on the big, massive six-lane roadways in downtown. The problem we have with dockless shares is that we have a legalized, massive dockless car share. And it's called vehicles and public parking spaces. <laughs> um inexplicably we don't seem to treat those as a nuisance on our public roads right and i'm personally in favor of a couple hybrid solutions i think that right now what you have is if we just let these scooters in and let them go everywhere yeah it would be a nuisance residents would hate that and because we only have this tiny sidewalk which are already cramped in many areas of mm. downtown why should we have more fighting of this tiny stretch of space when 90% of all the space in our city is dedicated to cars. I think the best way to handle this dockless situation is you take like a parking stall on every block and you install some bike racks on it, just like at, you know, in White Avenue, White Avenue that they do the temporary summer yep. ones that sometimes become permanent installations. Make a couple permanent installations. We're talking about one per block. So we're talking maybe 40 or 50 stalls over the entire area of downtown and then these just become bike parking and they become dockless share anything parking you can't leave them just strewn on the sidewalk you got to find a spot but you make the spots readily available there's enough and at your destination i like that idea a lot i'm sold on that i think it's a good point about the 90 percent going to dockless vehicles and we don't make a big stink about that uh, i'm sold i like your idea you get some complaints about these scooters like oh these people are riding so fast on the sidewalk and it all comes down to we give pedestrians nothing in the city so when innovators come in and try to improve the urban form of the city it's fighting for the nothing space we need to just be ready as an innovative city to give some of the other space because Here's the thing. We've got a downtown minimum bike grid. These electric scooters are going in the bike lanes. That's right. right. If there is a bike lane there, the scooters will go in the bike lanes. I, I don't think there's any question of that. And I think a scooter user will prefer to use the bike lanes. Well, and as a pedestrian, I'd prefer that too. Yeah. And as a cyclist, so would I. I'm happy to have an electric scooter sharing that space with me. I think that seems like the appropriate space. Well, that means we need to install more bike lanes. Oh. Come talk to me, Don Iverson. We can, we can get that done. <laughs> we can make that happen. The final point I'll put on the scooter thing is electric scooters are finally sort of like implementing the dream that Segways were, you know, in 2000. I've always wondered about this. Like Segway only found a niche in sort of industrial applications and all of a sudden scooters are popular. It's kind of like those other things that people roll around on. The hoverboard hoverboards. Things. Yeah, I, I don't get it. I think Segways are just very pricey. Um, scooters 
are literally a couple pieces of metal, some tiny wheels and a battery pack. I think that's that's the critical mass that we're finding is you can have companies like Bird or Lime throw in 500 to 1,000 of these, and that's just a minor capital investment. If Segways were cheap, I think we might see Segways everywhere in downtown outside of the River Valley. Uh, there's one final topic I want to touch on before we go because it's one of your favorite topics is police spending. Oh, I love to talk about police spending, but you were actually the one riled up about it this week. I was. So this came out of, we annexed that area of Beaumont, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So we annexed some new land, including Highway 19 um, and Leduc County, I guess. Leduc yeah. County. Yeah. So the police have to take care of this new area of Edmonton and they brought it back to report saying, Here's what we need to deal with that. And there were a couple facets to the report. The first one was that EPS recommended we need to twin Highway 19 to make it safer. That's like a cost of $25 million to do the eastern section. I struggle with the twinning of highways because it is unquestionably safer and it's like low-hanging fruit for Vision Zero. But also knowing in the back of my head that like induced demand and if we didn't build the highway, we wouldn't need to build another highway to make the first highway safer. But yeah, I'm not going to come out against twinning of highways. I'm an adult in 2019. (laughs) But what was truly fascinating was that part of the justification for twinning this highway was the reduction in collisions. Right. And then EPS went a step further and quantified the monetary value of a collision reduction. And they said basically $12,000 to $16,000 is the raw cost per collision in Edmonton based on 120 to 160 ish hours that, you know, of staff time, whether through its first responders or filling out forms or all these various facets. That's what it costs. Yeah. I think we were both quite surprised that they actually had a number for this. Yeah. So. There's two things that were really surprising. One is that like EPS like gave valuable concrete numbers that like they did the math. Yeah, they did the math and gave metrics and actually shared those metrics, which is huge change for EPS. Thumbs up to you guys. The second part was if we have a number, we have just a number that we can use to quantify. Why aren't we using this in every piece of traffic safety? Why isn't the Vision Zero report saying we saved this many dollars this year? By avoiding these collisions. Right. This is something that you hammer home. And this is something that I'd expect Councillor Paquette when he's talking about his public transit motions and how he wants to, you know, save money long term by making the city better together. These numbers are things that you should be hammering. And if we don't see twelve thousand to sixteen thousand dollars be a constant refrain in every discussion on traffic safety, I think someone is doing something very, very wrong. Oh, that's a really great point. It's very interesting that some of these very useful, informative statistics and metrics only come up in the most random reports. Yeah. Like if you just looked at the agendas and you said, oh, report about policing Highway 19, they kind of crap on the RCMP a little bit for not doing their job previously. Like, oh, now we got to clean it up because we're the adults or whatever. And then they have this really interesting information in there and quite detailed hourly breakdowns and the amount of work that goes into a collision and, and, and all of that information. Why didn't we have that before? Mm-hmm. Bizarre. Related in that report, in my history of doing traffic safety stuff, I've FOIPed a lot of city documents. And Mm -hmm. one of the most interesting pieces of information that I came across about three or four years ago was that those blinking driver feedback signs that tell you your speed, that cost about five to six thousand dollars. And that was not very public information at the time. The sign itself, the installation, everything. Well, see... I thought it was all in five or six thousand dollars. And then I hammered that home. We need to install more of these. 
in the policing report, it came out that they wanted to install a driver feedback sign on Highway 19, and they did need the province's permission to do that because provincial highway. But they said it'll cost approximately $16,000, $6,000 for the sign and $10,000 for the install. That's a lot of money. For one sign. Yeah, but also remember the conversation we're currently having. We cost twelve dollars to $16,000 per collision because of 120 to 160 hours of staff time. It costs $10,000 to install a driver. Why is it taking 120 hours to bolt a sign to a pole? <laughs> that's my question to the city of Edmonton. That's a great question. Um, and that's Troy question. did the math too. Yeah, I did the math and I belong on that subreddit. And that's a question that we don't have answers to um, just yet. But what we do have answers to is who's sponsoring this episode? Alberta Podcast Network is, of course, the network that we are proud to be a member of. And they have a new member that we wanted to highlight, which is the Eskimo Empire Podcast. It's hosted by Andrew, Mike, and Kayla. And I was surprised to learn that it's one of Edmonton's longest running podcasts. So I looked it up. Their first episode was May 21 of 2015. Uh, The podcast offers a passionate look at the Esks and CFL football every Tuesday during the season and a little less frequently through the offseason. You can check it out at eskempire.ca or, of course, albertapodcastnetwork.com. And that's all for this week. We've got a few items that we think might be interesting that are coming up next week at Council. Once again on the agenda, zoning of affordable and supportive housing. Seems like that's always on the agenda. Off-leash dog park, so you pet lovers are going to want to tune in for that. And an update on downtown business retention. We've talked before about empty storefronts all around downtown. We talked earlier this episode about empty storefronts downtown. We're going to get a report all about that. Uh, so you got to tune in next week to find out all about that. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.